Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. All right, we're moving into the Advent season. So we finished up the last series. Uh, this is a season where traditionally, as the people of God, we are, are celebrating uh, what one of the church fathers called the most astounding news in the universe, that, that God came in, the, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the idea of the incarnation, that Jesus Christ came and was born in Bethlehem as a baby. As I've been preparing for this Advent season and, and just trying to hear the Lord on what we should be talking about, the word that kept getting highlighted in my mind was adoration. And so uh, I came in today and saw the, oh, come let us adore him sign on the table. I was like, oh, this is so perfect because the theme for Advent is adoration. The, the, oh, come let us adore him, you know, the hymn, oh, come all ye faithful, um, and as I think about this topic, what I'm hoping to explore in the next few weeks going into Advent is, is what does adoration look like? What, what does it look like when we are an adoring people, people who are adoring our Savior? Um, so we're going to spend some time looking at the scriptures and exploring some different portraits of, of adoration, stories uh, about Jesus. And so you have the shepherds who are filled with wonder. You have the wise men who travel far distances. And and one of the things is I've, in preliminary studies, been looking at some of these stories. One of the things that jumps out to me is is an overwhelming sense that adoration is, it's much less about a rational exercise. And it's more about this overwhelming response to, um, to the reality that's around you. Uh, it, it's it's less about our minds getting around, um, uh, getting around what makes sense to us or making sense of a certain thing, and it's it's more about us being moved in the core of who we are uh, by those things that are most true in the world. It's less about figuring out some truth and defining it in all the different minute details, and, and it's more about soaking in the enjoyment. And, and the delight of, of certain particular truths. And so maybe if you've, if you've ever been in love, you've felt adoration. If you've ever had that experience where you might not be able to, to quantify or to break down and describe every little part of it, but if you've been moved in, in the relational truth of love, you've experienced that adoration. If you've ever felt attached to a newborn baby, you felt adoration. You know, a, a, a room with a brand newborn baby in it is, it's always just feels different than the rest of it. You know, adults have an opportunity to respond to what is most true about that child, and, and it really changes things. It, it was at this point in the sermon where I was going to uh, talk a little bit about my own, my own babies, my own kids who are no longer babies, uh, but you know, I put them through that more than enough when we're all here together. And so I had a different idea. I have a video clip from one of my family's favorite movies that I thought I would show today. I know, video clip Sunday. Like we are pulling out all the stops. So uh, so here we go. Oh, there's supposed to be sound on the... Do I need to restart it? Oh, all right. 
you tell us when you're ready, Josh. Ah, oh, look at that. All right. All right, we'll take a vote. Who wants to watch the rest of the movie? Who wants to hear the rest of the sermon? <laughs> Too few hands. Oh, man, I shouldn't have given that a vote. Uh, such a good movie, Storks. Uh, I love the part of the end where he's like, this thing is now a wolf. And so the, the cuteness of the baby that the wolves are sucked into adoration and it completely redefines their, their wolf pack. This thing is now a wolf. You know, a, a baby enters a, a room, a baby enters the lives of responsible adults and, and any person who, who is in that room and impacted by the presence of the baby is suddenly in a place where they would lay down their lives to protect that precious little one. I, I think that's because we have this sense within us where, where we, we intuitively begin to grasp the miracle that exists when a baby comes into our lives. What is most true about that baby is they're made in the image of God. They're worth so much, so much so that, that this person that God has just created is also this, a person who God is willing to die for. And so anyone who has the ability to exercise uh, an, an ounce of responsibility and anyone who has a speck of the image of God written in their hearts would lay down their life without hesitation, just like God would. You know, he's, he's in us so much and he's created us in his image. It's, it, it, in times like that, you can see, man, it's really hard. It's, it's hard for us to get away from that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so looking forward to celebrating Christ come as a baby. God, I pray that this Advent season, you would take our breath away with that truth. That we would be changed by the reality of who you are present in our world at Christmas time. Anything that we need to lay down or let go of to enter this season filled with wonder, hearts adoring you. Holy Spirit, would you be speaking to our hearts today and just preparing us for this new season of walking with you. In Jesus' name, amen. It's not quite Advent season yet. So the story I want to look at of adoration today isn't going to be a Christmas story. It's from the Gospel of Luke chapter 7. As you're turning your Bibles or Bible apps there, I will set the stage for you. So in Luke chapter 7, Jesus, had, he's just healed a centurion servant. He just raised a widow's son from the dead. Uh, John the Baptist ends up sending some of his servants to him saying, Jesus, are you the one that we're supposed to be waiting for? Is there another? Uh, Jesus tells John the Baptist's servants, hey, look around you. Miracles are happening, the blind are walking, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the gospel's being preached. And he says, blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. It wasn't a clear answer, but it's a good answer. And then he tells the crowds, as the, John's disciples are walking away, he tells the crowds, what a big deal John the Baptist was. And, and then he begins to berate the crowds for stumbling. Because of him. We're going to pick up reading in Luke chapter 7, verse 31. Uh, Jesus uh, begins to correct the crowd or, or rebuke them. He said, because they didn't see the truth about who John was, and they don't see the truth about who he is. And so he says in verse 31, it says, Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? 
They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking wine and you say he has a demon. And the son of man came eating and drinking and you say here is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is highlighting the people's ability to dismiss all the evidence that they see, to rationalize anything they need to rationalize, to assure themselves that they're the ones who are right and they don't need to change at all. So imagine yourself for a moment as a, as a good Jew living in first century Palestine and along comes John the Baptist and he's preaching a message of repentance. You need to change. But you're kind of put off by what he wears and his restrictive lifestyle and his stern call to repentance. And, and so it doesn't really matter to you who he is, who he really is. You're not buying it. A friend at work comes in and he's like, Oh, hey, John the Baptist, have you heard about this guy? And you're like, Nah, he's not the real deal. He probably has a demon. And then along comes Jesus. And you're put off by this whole water into wine thing. You're maybe even more put off by all the sinners that he's hanging out with. So it doesn't matter to you who he is. Your friend from work comes in. And he's like, oy vey, Jesus Christ, have you heard about this guy? And you're like, oh, you think he's the Messiah? Are you kidding? The guy who's feasting at Zacchaeus' house last week, he's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Did you hear he turned water into wine? That's not the Messiah. What's more, there's no way. There's no way that someone who spends that much time hanging out with prostitutes doesn't have ulterior motives. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if part of what we're witnessing in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist sending his disciples to ask, Jesus, are you the one or are we looking for another? This is John the Baptist who said, behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But as Jesus' ministry begins to unfold, it looks so different than John's ministry. I would not be surprised. I'll ask him someday when we get there. I'll ask him. I have a feeling in Luke chapter 7, he's thinking himself. I didn't expect the Messiah to look like this. I didn't expect the Messiah to do these things. John had been a Nazarite from birth. He'd never tasted a drop of alcohol. The guy had been living on bugs and honey out in the, out in the desert. He wearing camel's hair. And, and along comes Jesus. And he's doing ministry the way that he's doing it. He's hanging out with the tax collectors and sinners. He's eating good food and drink. He's, he's wearing a tunic that was no, sewn with no seams. I mean, you can't even buy that today. And he sends his disciples to ask because he's just, this is a little too much for him. This feasting friend of tax collectors was not who he was expecting the Messiah to be. He's beginning to wonder, did I get this wrong? Am I really looking for the right person? So he sends his disciples to ask, and we might be saying to ourselves, Jesus, this feels like a really easy yes or no question. Are you the one we're waiting for, or should we be waiting for someone else? And Jesus doesn't give them a straight answer. He doesn't present 
a three-point sermon, here's why I am him, and this is why you should believe. Rather, he, he invites John's disciples to look around, to see what's happening around them, and to embrace the deepest truth for themselves. Look around. The dead are raised. The lame are walking. The blind see. The gospel's being preached. What do you think? Who do you think I am? I'll be the first to say I, I wish Jesus gave straighter answers. But I do think that, that he knows there's something far more effective over the long run. There's something far more effective about inviting someone to observe and embrace truth themselves rather than trying to stuff truth in their ears or force feed it down their throats for them to have. The disciples of John are going to be far more likely to hold on to the conviction that Jesus is the Messiah if they arrive to that place by weighing the evidence themselves rather than just because Jesus claimed it in a plain statement, a bumper sticker style kind of a way. It would be really, really nice in our Christian faith to have short, clear answers to all the deep, hard questions about life and about Jesus. But I, I don't know about you, but I have come to find that the clear answers don't always change people's lives. But what has staying power is when someone can respond to that invitation to wade deeply into complex things and begin to tread the water and begin to form a view about the truth around them. John's disciples come to Jesus, and, and Jesus is like, am I the one you're looking for? That's a great question. Look around. What do you see? And then he turns to the crowd, as John's disciples are probably looking around and seeing, and maybe Jesus is seeing beliefs springing up in their minds and in their hearts. He, he turns to the crowd, and he rebukes them. It's like, are you not entertained? We sang a good song for you. Nobody danced. We sang a dirge for you. Nobody wept. God is trying to meet you where you're at, bring you a message that you can hear and your hearts are so hard. You're so distracted, you can't, you can't see the forest for the trees. I had a seventh grade algebra teacher who would say that to us all the time. You guys can't see the forest for the trees. Super effective way to teach math to middle schoolers, by the way. Use an analogy they can't understand. Um, you can't see the forest for the trees. Then, to make things super clear after all of this, the next thing Jesus does is he goes to a dinner party at a Pharisee's house. You imagine Jesus' ministry is just one PR nightmare after another. For like, whoever was in charge of managing that, maybe it was Thaddeus, like just sleepless night after sleepless night, having to answer for what Jesus did yesterday or what he's planning to do tomorrow on any, either side of the fence, right? Like he just, he did not do what people want him to do. A real story for today is from Luke chapter 7, verse 36. It says, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. And so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. So this is the first century Near East table. The table's low to the ground. Jesus is reclining at it, probably sitting 
you know, kind of sideways in like a, a beauty pose. And his feet are laying out there behind him. And this woman comes up behind him and she's weeping. And the tears are now falling on his feet and she's washing his feet with her tears. And then like, like you do when there's suddenly a wet mess on the ground, you just grab the first thing you can to try to wipe it up. And then, and, and because you don't use the good t- kitchen towels for things like that, right? Agreed? We don't use the good kitchen towels for things like that. She just, she grabs her hair and she's now drying his feet with her hair. I don't think I've ever had hair long enough to dry anything, but it doesn't seem like a super effective way to go. And then she's pouring perfume on them. And, and in case any of you are wondering, now I know the scripture was written in a different time, in a different place, in a different culture. There's probably a perfectly normal cultural expectation, explanation for why this woman is doing this crazy thing to Jesus. There is not one. In fact, given the, the sensibilities and, and the... Um, the modesty around male and female relationships and the sensuality of a woman's hair in the first century. This would have been even more scandalous then if, than it would have been today if it happened here today. This thing is absolutely strange. And so maybe one, one takeaway we have from this portrait of adoration is that adoration can be a little bit weird sometimes. This woman is carried away. She comes into a fancy dinner where she's not invited. And, 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 and the holiness of the Pharisee's house, the social norms of the upper class of society, it's completely lost on her as she's, she's moved by Jesus and his presence to tears. She's blubbering all over his feet. She's wiping his feet, his feet with her hair. She's pulling out the expensive perfume and, and pouring it all out. And this actually sounds a lot like another thing that happens later on in the Gospels. You know, there's another account of something like this, a woman who's carried away with adoration. It's shortly before Jesus' crucifixion, he's in a house with his disciples, and a, and a woman comes in, she's pouring out the perfume. It's kind of the same thing happening over again. Uh, and in that story, the same as this one, the people who are around this to see it happening are really uncomfortable. It's the disciples who are put off by the woman's adoration then. Uh, here it's, it's Jesus' host, the Pharisee. Verse 39 says, When the Pharisee who had invited him in saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is and that she is a sinner. If this man were truly a prophet, he would know who's touching him. This is, a, this is a Pharisee. He's familiar with the Old Testament. He understands the idea that evil has a contaminating effect on human beings. And, and one of the things that God has warned us from is being near to evil. We shouldn't touch it. We shouldn't associate with it. We shouldn't mess with that because it's like it'll make you sick. If this man were here, he would know she's a sinner. He would know what kind of a person is infecting him right now. What are we supposed to do with sinners? We're supposed to stay away from them. We're supposed to keep them away. One of the things you notice right away is this, this subtle judgment that creeps into the heart of somebody who's 
you know, who, who's sincerely trying to follow God, but something happens that blows his world up a little bit, and, and he, he falls right into judgment. Specifically, that judgment against Jesus. This guy claims to be the Messiah, but he's clearly wrong. I notice this tendency in my own life. Maybe you notice it in yours, but when, when somebody is responding in a way that doesn't seem right to me, when somebody's responding to, to something in a way that seems wrong to me, my default right away is to assume that they're further from God than I am. My default isn't to be challenged by what I'm seeing and think, well, maybe they're more right than I am. My default is to assume that if they were more righteous like I am, they would be engaged in the correct response just like I am. You know, the Pharisee could have thought, wow, this sinful woman, well-known sinful woman in the town, we can only imagine what her sins were. This sinful woman seems to be turning a new path. Here she is adoring this holy teacher. The Pharisee could have been carried away, living in excitement about the possibilities of what this represents. I mean, she's maybe not arrived yet, but she seems to be on a new path. On the other hand, he, he could have been challenged by seeing this. Oh my goodness, this sinful woman, well-known sinful woman in town, comes in and she is so moved by the presence of Jesus. When's the last time in my tired old Pharisee religious heart that I was moved by anything? What about this wall of excuses that I've built up all around myself to ensure that I'm never moved by anything? He probably could have responded in any number of ways. Unfortunately, he defaulted to hostility and judgment which is one of those just way too predictable themes in Scripture, right? I don't know the last time you've read the Bible cover to cover, but this happens over and over and over again. The people of God responding with hostility, hostility, which is not a thing, hostility and judgment towards the things that God is doing in their midst. Jesus answers him. Verse 40, Jesus answered him. What's interesting about that? Well, he said it to himself, right? He says these thoughts to himself, and then Jesus answers him out loud. This happens a few times where someone is in the presence of Jesus. They have this, this sort of dark, hidden mindset that's happening that's so wrong, and Jesus calls it out. And it's, it's so unfair. Like, where's the place that we can talk about Jesus behind his back without him knowing what we're saying? It's a good reminder that none of our own hostility or pride are hidden from God's spirit. Jesus answers him. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. He says, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, 500 days wages. And the other owed him 50 days wages. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. And so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them is going to love him more? Simon replied, Well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Why does Jesus tell this story? 
Well, the two debtors, the two people who owe money, are illustrating the people who are right there before Jesus right now. The sinful woman with her great debt and Simon with just a month and a half's worth of debt. It's illustrating the two people that Jesus is interacting with, the Pharisee and the adoring sinful woman. And Jesus in this moment is really concerned about one of those people. He's concerned enough to confront one of those people in their sin. And it isn't the sinful woman that Jesus is worried about. It's not the sinful woman that he confronts. His friend Simon, the Pharisee, is the one that is being confronted by Jesus. His friend Simon is the one who Jesus sees is on thin ice right now. He needs to hear truth today. He turns to the woman and he says to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. And you did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Jesus is saying to Simon, Simon, you have no idea who I am. The Messiah, the one who's been promised to your people from the beginning, came over to be your guest for dinner tonight. And you couldn't even show me the common cultural hospitality. No idea who he is. I mean, if Jesus came to my house for Thanksgiving, I would take my pajamas off and I would put on a tie, right? I'd put on that tie. Whatever the common standards of hospitality are. Simon cannot show him basic hospitality. And yet this woman has held nothing back. She's humiliated herself. Just to walk into that room would have been humiliating for her. Everybody knows who she is. Everybody knows what she's done. And she boldly walks in anyways. Because she is swept away with adoration for who Jesus is. She's gone out of her way to show what Jesus calls great love that is surpassing the basic standards of hospitality. He's saying to Simon, if you can't see her great love that she has been forgiven, then Simon, you can't see the forest for the trees. This sinner sees Jesus more clearly than the Pharisee does. This sinner understands forgiveness and righteousness and grace more clearly than the expert in the law. And this is another theme that repeats itself throughout the scriptures and throughout the gospels. It's the lowly sinners, the low, sorry, the lowly shepherds who see the angels proclaiming the birth of Christ, right? It's the Persian magi from the east who see the star of Christ's birth and respond to it. It's the thief on the cross who sees Jesus for who he is while the people of God are mocking him during his crucifixion. Why does this theme repeat itself so often? 
I really think it's be, it, the next thing that Jesus says gives us some insight into that. Verse 47, he says to Simon, whoever has been forgiven little loves little. I think this theme is repeated time and again out of God's genuine care for us, his concern for those of us who may be tempted to fall into the category of those who have been forgiven little, and therefore we really struggle to love. We really struggle to adore. When Jesus makes that statement, whoever's been forgiven little loves little, I don't think he means to make a definitive statement about the degree that Simon has sinned and how much he needs forgiveness. I don't think he's trying to rank this sinful woman who owes a bigger debt than the other one. I don't, I don't think he's trying to rank sins or say who's doing really bad and who's doing a little better. He, he doesn't seem to be all that into ranking that kind of stuff. Consider the fact, too, that Jesus knows the Pharisees, maybe Simon's one of the culprits, are plotting his murder. I don't know what this sinful woman has done, but whatever it is, it can't compare to murdering the Messiah, right? Which is maybe one good reason not to rank sins. You... you you think you're doing all right, but you, you wake up one day to realize you murdered the Messiah. And so you just have to be more careful around those things. I do think what Jesus is more interested in than all those other things is how Simon sees himself. Rather than trying to make a clear statement to settle for all time how God's people should deal with any sinners, Jesus is confronting Simon on his own issues in a deeply personal way. I'd say in a gentle way too, but here in Simon's home, at Simon's table, Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. You see yourself as someone who's been forgiven little. Simon, do you know what that means? Do you know how limiting that perspective is going to be on your ability to come to me? and receive the life that I offer. I think Jesus is making a point about self-righteousness, and I think the fact that this story is preserved for us, we're all invited to see the story, to watch it unfold, to listen, and to learn. Self-righteousness. The, the thoughts that, that religious people comfort themselves with at times. These thoughts greatly reduce our ability to love. Self-righteousness reduces our ability to adore. The thought that I don't need as much forgiveness inevitably chokes out my ability to be swept away in adoration of the one who's forgiven me all things. The self-righteousness of the Pharisees is a topic of serious, serious concern for Jesus. Simon, you're missing it. Simon, you're refusing to come to me for who I am. And you're refusing to come to me as you are. You can't believe that I'm the Messiah and you can't accept that you, like this woman, are a sinner saved by grace. Jesus is deeply concerned about this. Concerned enough to address it with Simon directly and in a personal way. You know, the interesting thing about this story, the woman's sins, whatever they were, and Jesus called them the, the great sins. <laughs> it's not 
nearly as big a concern for Jesus as Simon's self-righteousness here in this story. When Jesus addresses the woman in her sin, she doesn't. in this story, she doesn't even get a go in sin no more. When I was reading the story, I was waiting for that line because we hear that a lot when Jesus talks to people. Go and sin no more. She doesn't get one of those. To close it out with a woman, he says to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests begin to say among themselves, who is this person who thinks he can forgive sins? To clear it up, Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Your faith, the, the evidence of things unseen, as scripture describes it. You know, the woman sees Jesus for who he really is. He's the one who represents God's forgiveness for her many sins. And she's so in touch with this reality that she's swept away by it into these acts of adoration. She's moved to tears by love. She's moved to humility. This lowly and uncomfortable, intimate acts of adoration, washing his feet, kissing them repeatedly. Pouring out the perfume. True faith, I think, brings us into the kind of depth of relationship with God that that transforms us. Self-righteousness represents a wall to that kind of relationship. Simon can't even treat Jesus like a common friend from his age. He's unable to even embrace Jesus with a, 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 a common custom greeting of a kiss, right? His self-righteous attitude has kept him at arm's length away from Jesus Christ. And this woman comes in, and she is, she's borderline treating Jesus like a lover. The scandal. And yet this woman comes in, and she is living the life in this moment that every human being was created to live. She's engaging with Jesus in a humble and intimate way that every human being who was ever created was designed to live in. So we move into Advent season. We, we, it's, it's my belief that we not only need to see and receive and believe that the baby in the manger is the Son of God, But if we're to really enter into adoring Him, we have to be delivered from our own self-righteousness so that we don't get hung up on that relational barrier that just keeps us at a distance. Now, now hear me right. I say delivered from self-righteousness. That is not about you spending Advent convincing yourself that you are a bad, bad sinner. You know, at your core, you are made in the image of God In terms of your value, God sees you as someone who's worth dying for, someone who's worthy of love. Honestly, I I don't know what could be more good than that. But fleeing self-righteousness is more about not engaging in that practice of convincing myself that I'm better than others or engaging in the practice of justifying myself before God. It's, re- it's about refusing to lean on anything but the grace of God when I'm trying to figure out where he's at, where I stand, and how close I can come. We're all good because he is so good. 
I woke up this morning in fellowship with God today, not because I was a good boy yesterday or last week. And, you know, looking back, I was a pretty good boy yesterday and last week. But I woke up in fellowship with God because of, of how wide and long and deep and high his love is for me. And as we finish this season of seeking and receiving the fullness of God, I want to invite you into the next season to be willing to be swept away by the beauty and the power of God in us. The woman enters the room and sees Jesus at the table, and she's not distracted by the Pharisees who are plotting his death. She's not distracted by a table that's probably full of feasting goods while the neighbors outside are starving. She's not distracted by what's going on around her. She is overcome by the Jesus that she sees before her in that moment. And my prayer is that this Advent season, we would be overcome by the greatness of who God is as we all come to him together. Uh, We're going to close the service coming to the Lord's table. And so as the worship team comes up, uh, I just want to pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you sent your son to be born as a baby in a manger, rejoiced over, cooed over, dawdled over by his adoring parents, worshiping shepherds, and the hosts of heaven. Lord, we just confess today that we all fall short of seeing you for who you really are, of being swept away by the reality of who you are. God, our prayer is that this Advent season, you would open our eyes to see you as you truly are. That each of us would find a place of humble worship. That each of us would find our eyes fixed on you. And we would just be transformed by your glory and your grace. We thank you again for who you are, and we thank you today for a table that has been set with the body and the blood of Christ. As we remember your sacrifice, and as we eat this table together today, we just pray that each of us would be transformed. We are a room full of people who owe certainly more than a day's wages and probably some more than others. Each one of us is totally and completely forgiven by you. Help that reality to sink into our minds today. And help the greatness of who you are be what we hold on to. In Jesus' name, amen.